Welcome to Seize Your Midlife, the podcast exclusively for midlife women. I'm your host, Bree Schumacher. We are going to dive into all the things from health and hormones to beauty and wellness. We'll be asking the question, what's my midlife purpose? And what am I going to do with the rest of my life? We'll also be interviewing women who've taken leaps or made U-turns in midlife. This conversation is going to be engaging, sometimes educational, a little bit funny, and always real. It is my sincere hope that you find your midlife purpose and lead your most fulfilling life. So join us on this journey to seize your midlife. Let's go. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Caesar Midlife. I am so glad you are here today. So before we dive into today's interview, I just have to tell you how I met Kelly. My son, Brady, went to the eighth grade dance with Kelly's daughter. And before the dance, Brady told me that they were going over to Kelly's house, which is the the girl's mom. And there were going to be pictures. And I'm like, oh my gosh, of course I'm coming. And he's like, oh, what? No, you are not coming. Like, that is so embarrassing, mom. You are not coming. And I'm like, how do you think you're going to get to the dance? And he's like, well, I just thought you would drop me off. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. I am coming and I am coming in and I am taking pictures. And I do not care how embarrassed you are. And so then, of course, Andy's like, yeah, and I'm coming too. And he's like, what? what? There will be no dads. There will for sure be no dads. Like, do not come. And of course we went. Of course we went. Luckily for him, we did not bring his two little brothers in, but we went. And Kelly was warm and gracious and welcoming. And of course, there were other moms and even dads. And before you know it, Andy And Kelly's husband were playing ping pong just to really give Brady some extra embarrassment. And he lived. He survived through us showing up there. And Kelly and I then connected on social media. And I just loved her energy and her story. And I just really wanted to have her on the podcast. And so she is here today. I'm really excited. And before we get started with the actual interview – I'm just going to give you a little quick bio about Kelly Hoover. Okay, so Kelly is a mom of two beautiful girls, a wife of 17 years, a former pharmaceutical rep turned successful entrepreneur, and one of the top leaders in her network marketing business. She is also one of the rare mid-lifers who is killing it on social media. I still have not figured it out. There is so much more to Kelly's bio and to her story, but I really want you to hear it from her firsthand. So welcome to Caesar Midlife, Kelly. Hey there. So excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm so excited that you're sharing your time with us today. So As you know, my very first question on the podcast is always, how old are you? I am 43 years young. 
All right. Three years younger than me. So I definitely (laughs) consider you young. (laughs) Okay. And where are you right now? I am sitting in my office and um, right in my, my little home in my house. Yeah. Antigua K, South Carolina, right? That's right. Antigua K. Love this place. Yes, as I am also a new transplant to Tiga K. So exciting. Okay. And you're not from this area though, right? No, I am not. I'm actually from South Carolina, but about an hour and a half south, right outside of Columbia, South Carolina. Okay. And you mentioned that you went to college, you played tennis in college, but that's not where you ended up meeting your husband, right? Where did you end up meeting? So yes, I loved my college experience playing tennis, but we actually ended up meeting uh, my first year out of college at a bar downtown Charlotte. Oh my gosh. Okay. (laughs) All right. And, And tell us a little bit, like give me a little glimpse of what that looked like. Yeah. I always laugh and say, you can meet good people at bars, you know, because I, when I was raised, they're like, you don't meet your husband at a bar. You meet him, you know, somewhere more traditional. But we actually had a mutual friend and my girlfriend and I, her name is Samantha, we were leaving a local bar and my husband, Matt, and his friends were coming in. And so there was an exchange. My friend knew some of his friends and there was an exchange. Hello. Hey, how are you? And of course, they ended up talking and we ended up talking and we connected within five minutes of meeting each other. Oh my gosh. And you end up getting married. Yes. So tell me about those first few years of marriage because it sounds like it was a little bit rough, not marriage-wise, but life-wise. Yeah, it absolutely was. We grew up extremely different you know, on every aspect, not only just different parts of the country, but we're raised by uh, different values and different things. So those, those first few years, you know, it was growing pains. But the main thing that was very interesting is how we had to live life and how, how poor we were and just how things were so stretched. And the best example that I can really give is we got married, we came home from our honeymoon on a Sunday And my husband started school, full-time day school, the following Monday. We, in fact, planned our wedding and our honeymoon around when he was starting school. He was finishing his undergraduate education. And so his degree had to go to school during the day. So he worked a part-time job in the afternoon. And I was full-time in pharmaceuticals. I was getting my grad school degree two nights a week. And because we couldn't afford to, to live normal life, I had to get a second job and I nannied at night. So I nannied for a a woman who worked a 12 hour shift. So I would go in, I would go to work all day, go to my nanny job at seven o'clock or six 30, usually, you know, study while I was there, spent the night. And then I left the next morning, usually around seven 30 in the morning and went back to my pharma job. So we were eating ramen noodles. We were piling up credit card debt. We were struggling very like, for the first several years, really, really struggling. Oh my gosh. It sounds it sounds rough. And you weren't even sleeping in the same bed as your husband because you were sleeping where you were nannying. That does not sound easy. Yeah, it wasn't. Oh my gosh. But you then go on to have two daughters. So how long into your marriage do you have the girls? 
Yeah. So we, after he graduated, I graduated, we decided, okay, we want to start a family. And we actually had some difficulty um, conceiving. And so it took us about a year and a half, but then we were blessed with our oldest daughter, Brinley. She was born in 2010. So we had a few, or 2008, sorry. My other one was born in 2010 and um, she was sort of a surprise. So it wasn't very long. Um, About three years after we were married, we began having children. Okay. And it's funny because our kids are exact same years, 2008, (laughs) 2010, except then I had a third one. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I would have had a third one, Brie. Like I wanted more, but I just wasn't blessed with more. Oh, well, you have two beautiful girls. So that is awesome. And then, you know, things kind of start turning around for you guys, right? Like, you know, things are getting better with work. You're really killing it in your pharmaceutical job. Like things are going better, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. We both finished our school, you know, moved to take a K during that time and both have careers. In fact, my husband is still with his current company that he he started his career with. So yeah, things started definitely going in the direction that we wanted. Oh, that is great. But it didn't last long because then in 2014, you just start not feeling like yourself, right? Right. Yeah. I began to like have, you know, headaches. And at first it really wasn't recognizable, but I just started feeling, you know, like just not, not my normal self. I'm not a natural complainer, but, uh, it was, it was just headaches. It was just, you know, sort of just feeling weird and awkward. And I didn't really realize what it was at first, actually. So you go to the doctor for the first time, right? Mm -hmm. You finally go to the doctor and what was it? I know you said something about you You had this running group and it was your friends in that running group that were like, yeah, Kelly, like this isn't you. What happened with that? Yeah. So I used to to run a lot and they noticed, they're like, you never complain, but you are complaining all the time of headaches. This went on for probably Brie, like four or five months. And looking back on it, I am like, oh my gosh, I miss so many clear signs but I was just way too busy raising kids and working to even pay attention to my own health. And they said, like, you've got to go to the doctor. And finally, I went to the doctor and the doctor basically did not even diagnose me with migraines or anything. They told me I was depressed, that I had, you know, depression. And at that current time in pharmaceuticals, I was working in anxiety and depression. So I was pretty educated about it. And it's like, gosh, I don't, I don't certainly feel depressed, but I was stressed and I was working a ton. My husband was was gone, you know, all the time. And so I really, uh, I, I really was like, okay, well, you know, a doctor tells you this, so you kind of are. So yeah, the, my very first diagnosis was depression. I just want to like hold on to a couple things you said there. And I think one is that you know you have these things going on with your body, but you're you're not really like engaging in it that much. You're just kind of like, okay, I'm taking some Advil. I'm maybe complaining more, but I'm buried in all the things. Like my husband's traveling. I've got two kids. I've got this career. Like I don't even really have time to deal with like something going wrong with myself. And I think a lot of moms that are listening can relate to that. Like I just don't even – like have the time or even like energy to focus on all the things that might be going wrong. And then on top of that, that you finally go to the doctor and you're dismissed with depression. I think that that is such a common thing that happens 
you know, to women that it's like, oh no, it's, it's psychological and things get passed on and we have to like advocate for ourselves because of that kind of stuff that happens. So, you know, I just wanted to point that out because I think those are two really important pieces in your story. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, for listeners to really like stop and understand how you feel to take a few moments. I never valued, I never valued that. I was, you know, so caught up in the to-do list and all the, what I considered the most important priorities in my life at that point that I never was still long enough or I never was in tune with my body enough to even realize I was frequently having these headaches and, Hey, you know, maybe I, maybe I'm really not depressed. Maybe it's something further. And it is so incredibly important to not be that way. Um, cause you just, you know, you can miss so many things in life. Yeah. And you're definitely not the only one that this has happened to where you miss things or yeah. you get dismissed, but something kind of eye-opening happens to you and something kind of scary. Talk about that moment when you're at home. Yeah. So probably it was probably about four months after my initial doctor visit. Uh, we had moved into a new home. We were still in TKK. We'd moved about a mile down the road, which a lot of people do here. And we were in our home for about a week. And I my, my headaches had gotten more frequent and my vision this specific day had gotten a little blurry, you know, which was a little scary. So I came home from work that day. I got into the bed. It just wasn't feeling good. And I do have a high pain tolerance. So this one just, it just something felt different. And I actually was really afraid. I was scared. I thought I was having a brain aneurysm. I told my husband, like, you're going to have to take me to the hospital. So my girls are young. We call a friend over. We didn't have family at that point in our life living close. So we call a girlfriend over to, to watch our kids. They were young. While my husband takes me to the hospital, he gets me up out of bed and I collapse. Um, right there on the second story of our home, collapsed. They say my eyes don't open. You know, I'm like, I look like I was having a seizure. I wasn't, but that's what my body was looking like, they told me. And my husband dialed 911. They rushed me to the hospital. And it was a very, very scary moment. My girlfriend took my kids away. And, you know, just so they didn't have to witness what was happening to their mom, it, it chokes me up and makes me emotional thinking about it. And, I got to the hospital and they still did not, what I look back on now and say, give me the care that I so, so needed. And so they get there, they immediately give me IV full of pain medication. I remember how it felt going into my veins and they still didn't, they didn't scan my brain. They told me I was having, you know, a severe migraine. And that I needed to go see a neurologist the next day. And they dismissed me at like about 1.30 in the morning. I, I got home from the hospital that night. Oh my gosh. I, I literally can't even believe you had no MRI or anything. Nothing. I know. It's shocking. It, it really, it really is. Because you, I mean, you could have had an aneurysm or something that was, I mean, not that what ends up happening isn't like, you know, life shattering, but gosh, that is just, wow. Oh my goodness. Okay. So- you got home and of course 
you don't start feeling better, what ends up happening? So I ended up at our neurologist the very next day and I was educated. You know, I, like I said, I was working in depression and anxiety. I called on a psychiatrist and neurologist and a lot of different doctors. I'm very aware of them. I go in to see one and she again sort of dismisses and says, you know, I do think you're having migraines, but I'm going to give you a brain MRI just to make you feel better. And I was at this point, I am frustrated. I am mad. And I am like, you're going to give me, I'm not leaving this office until this happens. I will pay cash. I don't care. Something is not right with my body. And so they schedule an MRI for like the next week. And during that MRI, the, the person that was helping me says, Hey, if there's anything wrong, they will contact you in the next 24 hours. Well, a week goes by and never get a phone call. So I am like, okay, I'm in the clear. I guess I'm having migraines. I guess I'm depressed. I guess what they're telling me is right. It's all in my head kind of situation. And then nine days after my MRI, I get a phone call from the neurologist saying we need to talk. And I call her back immediately. I'm about an hour from home. I pull over. I remember feeling like terrified and helpless in that moment. But at that point, she says to me, you have a pineal cyst. It's a cyst. We need to monitor it. I need to see you every three months. And I was like, okay, well, that's not great, but it's not bad. It explains some things, but she then, you know, was like sort of dismissed again. And so it was a, it was an awkward feeling, like an alone feeling, a feeling of, okay, maybe it is in my head. And so you know, that was my very first, I guess, diagnosis that there was something, but it wasn't as, as serious as what ends up happening. Oh my gosh. And again, like the fact that it took them nine days because you know in the waiting it's excruciating, right? Like right. what is – what's the call going to be? And to wait nine days to even give you that call is another like misstep in this whole story, right? Like, oh, but – you get this diagnosis of a cyst, and I actually have a cyst in my liver, so I am familiar with this whole like, okay, you know, come back every few months. We're just going to monitor it, whatever. But the truth is you just are getting worse, right? Right, right. And I continue to get worse. And every research, you know, of course, when you get something, the first thing we do is we go to Google, right? We Oh, yeah. We go, Dr. Google. <laughs> right. We go and try and like – figure out, you know, all the things. So that's exactly what I did. This is, you know, at this point in time, it's around October. I had gone to, you know, the hospital in September. So we're talking about a, a month time span, basically between, you know, going to the hospital and this. And I start going to Google and I'm like, this cyst is not supposed to cause headaches. Like my symptoms are here. The cyst, they're not correlating according to Google. So my mom, who is not on social media, says to me, you need to go and, you know, get on Facebook and find like a support group. There's got to be other people dealing with this, Kelly. And I'm like, oh, you're, you're so right. So I start to do this and I actually, the pain had gotten so bad and it had gotten so frequent. I was in the bed probably two days, maybe sometimes three days a week now, like not able to function, not able to take care of my young kids who were, my youngest was not even in, you know, kindergarten yet. My husband gone a lot, no family near. It was a really challenging time to, to try to parent through. And I start finding other people who are dealing with this, but who've been misdiagnosed. And I start really uncovering and peeling back some things of, of what may be wrong. Oh my gosh. I, 
I just can't even imagine. Like, and you told me you had gone from like a pain that had maybe been like a three, six to like a 10 at this point, right? Right. Sort of during this time, I had, I began to come like, you know, as an advocate for myself, but I had found a specific doctor in Charlotte who only dealt with headaches. And she didn't, she was so like sought after that she took no insurance. It was cash. It was not cheap to see her, but I needed to deal with pain because and I needed to be able to function in my life. So while I'm in this process, I saw her and I'm not even joking. She gave me a list. Uh, I had a, a slew of medicines and I refused personally, this is a personal reason. I refused to do any narcotics because I was terrified of being addicted and um, I have a addictive personality and I, I'm thank goodness I've always been addicted to generally healthy things, but I just didn't want to go down that route. So I would wake up every day with a headache every day of my life. And so she was like, okay, if it's a level three, you take this. If it doesn't go away or get better, you go to a level six, here's another medicine. And then if it, if it, by two or three o'clock in the day, it would get so bad that I felt like a hammer was beating on my head go home, get in the bed and take this combination and you'll just sleep through it. And so that was what every day of my life at that point looked like. Oh my gosh. I mean, you just have, I I can't even imagine because I'm picturing the two kids and I had a husband that was gone, you know, up to 200 days a year or two when my kids were young. So I can completely understand like you're barely keeping your head above water when you are a working mom with two small kids, a traveling husband, and you're a hundred percent healthy. So I just, I can't even imagine how you were doing it because you can't parent while you're asleep. Right. So this, I'm sure, drove you to get another opinion, get more answers, right? Right. Yeah. So when my mom said, go find support, I got into this group and I started reading people's stories. And that's why I love you know, what you do here on the podcast because stories really connect with people and they help people get through things. And through hearing other people's stories, I realized that it was more than what they were telling me. And so I realized like I was just like them. They were getting misdiagnosed. It was really a tumor. It was very rare. A lot of doctors weren't educated. And so I found three doctors that were spread across the United States, one in Houston, Texas, one in California, and one in Charleston, South Carolina, who was just kind of coming on the scene of dealing with these these type of issues, very not extremely experienced. And so I saw them all. I was like, I'm getting everyone's opinion. I'm like giving them my, you know, MRI results. I'm going to get other people's opinions at this point besides just my local community. And then I actually saw a neurosurgeon here locally as well. So I ended up seeing getting four different opinions at that point. So when you start going to see all these specialists, you had realized at this point, how did you get to the point where you're like, it's not a cyst, it's actually a tumor? Did you know that before you went to go see these specialists or were you going to the specialist to try to uncover that? Well, I kind of had an idea because of the the stories I was hearing. And people are like, okay, if you have this cyst and you're having these symptoms, it's not a cyst. It is a tumor. This pineal cyst actually lives in about 10% of, you know, just the, the human race. It's a pretty common cyst. And most people never know they have it unless, you know, they're in a car accident or something. They have a random scan, then they see it, but it does not cause symptoms. 
that's when I started putting the two together. So going to the doctors, I wasn't sure if it was a tumor, but I knew that I had a cyst and I knew I had the symptoms and it really didn't take a rocket scientist to kind of figure this thing out. And so they, they actually looked at the MRI results. Uh, two of them actually had wanted me to get their own MRI. So more testing. And the only way that they really a hundred percent know is to remove it and to have surgery. And so they were very sure that it was a tumor, but it was still sort of, you know, not a hundred percent. This is what it is. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, the crazy thing is if you think about this, you are a educated woman at this point, you have a master's degree. You are, you know, living a life of privilege where you can pay for pain, you know, management and all of these things. And you just imagine all the time, like how how much time has passed from these headaches starting to you finally having doctors being like, yeah, you have a tumor? Uh, about eight months. I mean, and just think if you didn't have all those means, yeah. you know, the suffering that would have continued for you. So it's just, oh, it's just a crazy thing. Just this kind of stuff that happens. So how did you finally make the decision and where you were going to go? Because at this point you had to like not trusted, you know, the medical system at this point. Yeah. So I finally made the decision when I saw all three and between the doctor visits, it took some time waiting to get in, but it was about a I think it's probably about a six to eight week window between seeing them all, all four of them. And the one locally, they all pretty much were like, three of them were like, we're 95% sure that it is a tumor. And as soon as you have it removed, your your symptoms should go away. Uh, most of these tumors are not cancer. So I, you know, of course there, there's a small chance, but I wasn't overly scared that that was going to be the road. But, you know, I just wanted to feel better. I couldn't, it was affecting my daily life. And so I realized if I went to the two doctors, the one in LA or the one in Houston, you couldn't fly afterwards. I had to stay out there for four to six weeks. And during this time, it's now we're we're heading into the summer. You know, it's the summer before my youngest daughter's going into kindergarten. I just couldn't imagine being away from my family and putting my family through that. So I ended up going to the Charleston doctor who was out of those doctors, the least experienced, but I felt good. I felt I trusted him. Uh, he had great bedside manner. He believed that these things were correlated. And for really the first time, I felt heard. I felt not dismissed. And so I ended up having surgery there. And he worked with my local doctor in Charlotte. And they sort of allowed me to come home. So I actually wasn't there long. I was able to recover in my own house with my own doctor looking after me here in Charlotte, which was really how I made the decision of what person to have surgery with. Oh my gosh. Well, and for those of you listening that aren't familiar with this area, Charleston is still over three hours from here. So it's not like, you know, your family could have been, you know, there every day because they're still having to go on with their lives. So I'm so glad that that happened. But let's back up a minute because you're going into the surgery and I can't even imagine how afraid you were because you're such a positive person, but the truth is brain surgery is major. So how did that feel for you being wheeled away? Yeah, it's, uh, I have tears whelping up in my eyes because, (laughs) well, it just, it just takes you back to, you know, the conversations leading up to it. You, you know, I had to sit down with my husband, Matt, and have that conversation of what if I don't make it? 
you know, how do, how does life look? What do you do? And, you know, we, we tried to keep it light. We're, we're kind of funny and we, we, we tried to keep it really light, but those conversations are never easy to have. There was also a likelihood, there was a higher chance that I could have come out uh, blind, like losing my vision or it being extremely impacted. So we had to have those conversations of what if I come out and I can't see. Because where my tumor was, it was right next to the optic nerve and was putting pressure on the optic nerve. And so it was a, like, I can't remember the exact percentage, but it was not a small percentage. It was a larger percentage that, you know, they, they discussed it with you that you may not be able to see. So you go in, you have those conversations, but you know, the interesting thing is I think I had prepared myself that, you know, I am, I am strong. I am positive, And I really, really tried to look at it and saying, this is my storm in life. Like I'm going to do it. I need to be present. I believe I'm going to be okay. And having those conversations, having the support, having your community, this community in TKK, they rallied around me. My family rallied around me. And I just, Anytime I wanted to go negative or I wanted to think about the what ifs, you know, I had to have those conversations. But when I, you know, when it's just me and me talking, I just stopped myself and I I forced myself to, to not think that way. Because I think when you allow yourself to think that way, it can continue. So I just really honestly didn't allow it and just tried to view the positive end. Wow. Well, and mindset, of course, is so important in all the things, but I this sounds terrifying. I mean, all those, you know, risks, they sound really terrifying. So, oh, and then you get out of the surgery and you can see your sight is not impacted, right? It actually improved, right? Oh my gosh, <laughs> really? Yes. You yes. didn't tell me that. That's crazy. Yeah. When I went back to my eye doctor, my vision improved by a good amount. Like my contacts got less and very interesting. Yes. Wow. But the recovery was rough. The recovery was rough. It was very rough. And driving home, you mentioned Charleston and TK. It's about a three-hour drive. And that... I remember first, let me take a a step back. I remember being in the ICU after surgery. I vividly remember this moment in my life and feeling, I mean, I had, I was minutes outside of brain surgery and I was like, I felt so light. I knew at that moment I was there, you know, with no family, just the nursing staff recovery. And I just was like, holy cow, my head feels lighter. And the tumor itself is so small, but I felt clear. I I just knew it had worked. I could see, they gave me my glasses. I could see uh, recovery. I got home. It was a very, very long ride home, but I got home. I was very sick during the transporting process. That was not good, but I get home. We're all set up in my house. The biggest part of the recovery was for four weeks, I really could not be left alone. Um, I had to keep my eyes closed for 23 out of 24 hours. I had to wear pretty much a face mask. Uh, so there was no TV watching, no book reading. Um, and I really like sounds. I had to wear ear, you know, 4th of July came around and all the fireworks. I had to have earplugs, noise canceling, all of those things because my Everything was so sensitive, but that lasted about a month. So it was a challenge. I mean, people brought me food. They, they, this community fed me, fed my family and I so well. And my husband took the role of, you know, normalizing things for our children because, you know, things, 
for nine months, they had seen their mom sick and he normalized things for them. And I relied on my friends to really care for me. So they had a sign up genius and people were with me all the time. They just hung out. They did what they did while I pretty much sat in the recliner because I had to sleep sitting up. So the month recovery was was hard. Oh my gosh, it sounds excruciating. I mean, first of all, the sleeping in the recliner sounds awful. The having to not open your eyes, to just sit there, I mean, really mostly with your own thoughts, right? Because you you can't have TV, you can't read, you can't do all the things that you would normally do if you were just sick in your bed, right? You can't do any of those things. So you are spending a lot of time alone with your thoughts and your mindset kind of starts to shift. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, during that time, you know, you I was alone in my thoughts a ton. And I really, you know, was trying to to envision myself. You know, when your eyes are closed, you're dreaming, you're visioning things and I really felt during that month like my life needed to change. My priorities in life needed to change. I would never say before my surgery that I knew what mindset was, that self-development. I really didn't have a concept of that. It wasn't a word I used. It wasn't anything that I paid much attention to. But during that time, I start to not necessarily think about those words, but now looking back on it, I know that's what was happening I start planning out how I'm going to live life differently. I start saying like, when I get better, I'm going to love more. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do all these different things. I didn't know how, but I just knew I wanted something different. And so I really started dreaming and planning uh, about what my future looked like and how it was going to change. Well, and I know you mentioned to me that at this point, you're working a ton. You're very successful in your pharmaceutical role. I mean, when I say now, I mean prior to you going in for your surgery. And you have a nanny. And you said the nanny is spending a lot of time with her kids because you're spending so much time working. Your husband's traveling. And I imagine that in this moment, that is part of your thoughts shifting, right? Absolutely. I will never forget. I had an amazing, and she's still so in our life. We love her. Uh, full-time nanny. She had been with us since my youngest daughter, Bela, was seven or eight weeks old. Um, and so, you know, she's now going into kindergarten and she was there. She's a huge presence in our life, but she was raising my children. And I never knew that there was a difference. I felt very stuck. I never gave myself an opportunity to do anything different besides work the 50 or 60 hours a week I worked in pharma. And during this transition, I kept replaying this one moment, which had happened during my sickness. If you back up about six weeks before I had surgery, I had to travel to Las Vegas for a meeting. And my youngest at that point was you know, graduating four-year-old preschools. She'd been in preschool for three years and I wasn't there. I wasn't Mm -hmm. present. I had to sit out at 6 a.m. while it was 9 a.m. on the East Coast and FaceTime watch her in the church graduate. And I missed that moment. There were many moments, Bree, that I missed. That was replaying in my head also. And, you know, the amount that I worked, the amount that I missed and You know, it never crossed my mind before because this is the life I signed up for. This was the plan. We had had this life we were living and I liked the life I was living. I liked having the things. Um, And so all of those things were, were playing through. And I could not in my head think 
yeah, you know, I, you can still live this life. You know, I didn't, I didn't know. I just knew I didn't want to go back to that life. I didn't know how to change it, but I knew I didn't want it anymore. Well, and like you said, at this point, you've kind of built up your lifestyle around this high-powered job that you have. Right. So you don't walk out of surgery and quit your job. No. You can't. So what happens? So during the moment, right before I started going, uh, I went back to work. Before surgery, I was on Facebook. I was not someone who was posting on Facebook. I posted twice a year and it was like, thank you for the birthday wishes and Merry Christmas. But I was connected with someone who had sort of sent me a package. And, you know, during that time, she didn't really know what was going on with me. But while before I went back to work, I decided to open this package. I decided like my doctors had told me you, you know, I'd gone back for the follow-up and they told me that I was going to, to need to be on medication to give myself, you know, energy through the day and to help me sleep at night. Because part of where my tumor was, was where regulates your melatonin, uh, the pineal gland. I had my entire pineal gland removed because the tumor had engulfed it. So they told me I was going to be on stimulants and sleep aids pretty much the rest of my life. And during this time in recovery, I said, I really need to find a healthy way. I don't want to be on medicine. I don't want to have to take medicine to sleep or medicine to wake up. And so I went back to, you know, researching healthy ways to get things in this package that my girlfriend had sent me Three months before I'd paid zero attention to, I decided to open. I decided to reconnect with her because all she was talking about on social media was how great she felt because of, you know, her energy. And and that's sort of, you know, where my, I guess, chapter of the next part comes into play. But I would never have gotten there had I not had an open heart, had I not had an open mind. And that was really what happened after that recovery was I promised myself that I would keep my eyes open. I would keep my heart open because to change your life drastically, your everyday life, you have to see things differently. And I didn't know what, but I knew that that I needed to have that open heart and open mind. And that's where I think things started to happen differently. That's such an interesting thing that you just said because I think sometimes we don't give ourselves the space to let our mind wander and find other opportunities or spaces where our lives can change or improve. And you were forced into giving yourself that space to let your mind wander and become more open. And so that's a really interesting thing, how you came to really changing your mind because of that quiet space that you were forced to sit in for so long. Okay. So this package, tell me a little bit about what it was and kind of what you end up deciding to do with it. So I opened the package and there was some samples of just some supplements that my friend had been taking and I trusted her. We were in pharmaceuticals together and we always drank energy drinks and coffee. So like I knew that she, she wasn't doing that when she was feeling good. I was like, okay, got my attention a little bit. And it was something that I needed. I didn't really think I I thought I needed before, but here I am in recovery. I'm scared to death, Brie, to go back to my, my life. I was scared to go back to working 50 hours a week and my husband being gone. And now I have a kindergartner and a second grader. And I was terrified that I couldn't keep up. 
because I'd just gone through all this trauma. I had just, you know, my life had just been flipped upside down and I was afraid. And so I opened this package and it was really looking back on it. It was, it was probably like just hope. I was like, oh, this is hope that maybe this can get me back to, to being that energized mom that I used to be. And so I open it and I, I begin to take it. I connected with her. I said, okay, tell me what I got to do. And I felt within a week, I felt so different. I did have energy and I felt like the mom that I was, I actually felt like I felt before I had kids. And that itself provided me hope and um, like the potential that, hey, I can be, you know, that that person who maybe the part I wanted, I was in the past, but the new version of myself as well. So really the whole package and opening it and all of that really provided me like hope that I could I could go back to my pharmaceutical life and do all the things that I was doing before surgery. So you you take this packet, you start to feel better, but when you're, you know, you're really just taking this for your own consumption and it's working for you. So at what point do you decide that you want to be part of this organization, part of this MLM? Like what what happens that you say this is something that I need to to get involved with? So I started feeling great. People started noticing it. And I do have a big mouth. I when I like things, <laughs> when I like things, people know about it. And uh it's a restaurant, whatever. So I just started like people started noticing. I started like, oh yeah, you're tired. You need this too. And so I started sending my girlfriend referrals, just people that I loved in my life. And she comes to me and at this point she's like, you know, you're doing all of this. Like, have you, why, why wouldn't you start your own business? And in my head, again, I revert back to who I was before. I promised myself I'd be an open heart, open mind, but I wasn't. My initial response is, I don't have time for that. And, you know, don't disrespect to anyone, but I honestly felt like I was too good for something like that. I had, I had always supported my friends in MLM, but I would, I was like, I'm educated. I'm a pharmaceutical rep. I'm, I, I never thought I could be what she did. And so at the very beginning, I did dismiss it. And thank goodness she was a good friend to me and just said, like, you're already doing everything. You have a great story. Um, why not? And she started painting the picture of, what it could look like. And, you know, at this point in time, she had actually left her pharma job. So I saw her having success. And that was the first key that really opened that said, what if this is like an opportunity for me? What if this is? So I decided to to become a representative and I started to be more intentional about sharing my story with others and being more intentional about learning this whole industry because it is an industry I had zero experience in. And so I was open to the the mindset that, hey, this could be something that could allow me a different option in the future. Well, and you end up, I mean, you're still working at this point, but you're working part-time, right? Yes. About six months after I had gone back to work, I had applied to work part-time in pharma and I was doing, you know, part-time and then I was doing my MLM business, you know, in between those. So yes, it's about six months. But you end up even just doing it part-time, you end up being super successful pretty quickly. Yes. I had success very, very fast. And, you know, that painted the picture that, gosh, this could be a way out. This could be, I never before having a brain tumor 
never wanted to be, not that there is anything wrong, but I never wanted to be the stay at home mom. I love to work. I love to, to, you know, live the life that, you know, was dual incomes. And I felt like this could be an opportunity that I could be because I wanted more time. My mind had changed. I wanted to be with my kids and I felt like this was an option for me. Yeah. And but you're still kind of going along, you know, okay, I can do both. I can have the part-time pharma. I can have the part-time Laval business. But then your pharmaceutical company comes to you and they kind of give you an ultimatum, right? Yes, they did. They came to me and said, you have to choose. You have to continue your career. I had been there for over a decade in the industry for 15 years with this company over a decade very well respected, but they gave me an ultimatum. They really felt like it was a threat. I I don't know. I probably would have continued to do both because I carried our benefits. I had a car, you know, it was, it was great. I had the best of both worlds, but they gave me an ultimatum. And that was a scary, a scary moment, you know, choosing between the two. So you end up leaving the pharmaceutical company and going all in with Laval, right? So what does that look like and what ends up happening? So very scary decision to walk away from your 15-year career to do <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> network marketing because, you know, I didn't I wasn't exposed to a lot of people who had had success. I knew a lot of people, but my husband really was the one who was like, you should do this. You you could do this. Like this is a way that you can provide income, but you can be at home. You can live the life that you really after surgery want. And he, him believing in me and pushing me and like, you have the business skills, apply your business skills to this, you know, multi-level marketing business. And I'm like, okay. So I turned my resignation in and we literally have a, a family meeting with my girls who are still young. Now they're, they're in first and third grade by this moment. And my husband, you know, he's still traveling a ton and we're like, this is what we're doing. This is what mommy's doing. And I, I got to be the, the mom that picked them up from school, I got to be those things. But during the day, I was all in. I was working some at night. I was working some on the weekends. But everybody knew, like we had a family discussion, like we're going all in. Mommy is doing this until we hit this certain level, which was the top level of the company. Because I needed to do that to be able to provide financially for my family. So that's what we did. We went in and it wasn't just me. I had to have my husband and my children on board. And we set sort of goals like, hey, if we do this, we'll reward ourselves as a family with you know this sort of vacation. And that's sort of how we approach that transition. Wow. And you end up getting there. Yes. Quickly. Yes. Five months. Wow. Amazing. It's amazing what can happen in your life when you just take a leap. It's unbelievable. But you didn't stop with just running Laval, the MLM business. You end up then starting a podcast and starting a side business coaching other entrepreneurs, right? So what does that look like? Yes, because of really going all in and the, you know, success that I was that I was having, a lot of people were coming and asking myself and one of my girlfriends, Blair, who is my co-owner in our coaching business, like, what are you guys doing? And it wasn't just network marketers, it was real estate agents, it was all sorts of people who were building a social media presence. Most of them in their midlife, you know, they're building this presence. This is a time where people are really monetizing 
online presence and we were good at it. And so people asked us all the time. So we started a coaching business and that a year later turned into a podcast and it's been so much uh, fun. It's It's been amazing to watch other women have success and helping them with just truly our own life experiences that have, have gotten us there. So that has been um, so much fun to be able to do that. Well, and really, it's pretty incredible when you say like at the start of this journey, you were somebody that went on Facebook like twice a year. And then all of a sudden now you're like this social media powerhouse that's training like, you know, real estate agents and business owners on how to be more powerful on social media as a woman in midlife. Because, I mean, we did not grow up in this era of knowing what to do or how to do it online. So it's pretty incredible that you figured it out and figured it out so fast. Yeah. I really wanted to do it because I knew that it was a way to reach and network with people who I was, you know, I was currently not you know, seeing face to face. I love people. I love helping and serving people. It's part of why I was in pharmaceuticals because I have always had that as part of my my personality. And then I thought, well, wow, I could really touch more people by doing something online instead of, you know, it's, it's time consuming when you're meeting with people one-on-one versus when you can have, you know, masses across all, not only the United States, but, you know, across the world. And so, when I started, I had 300 connections on Facebook, no Instagram, no other accounts on any social media. And I just dove in. I decided I'm going to learn how to do this. I'm going to become an expert. I'm going to, you know, really, truly understand it. And it's been fun. It's a world that constantly changes. It's different now than it was you know, even a year or two ago. Yeah. I'm impressed. I'm impressed because I have not figured it out. So I love that. I love that about you and that you're not afraid to show up. I think that's awesome. Okay. So I think that most people listening, you know, get the fact that not everyone, in fact, a lot of people, most people, some might say, are not successful with MLMs. You know, it might be like their little side, you know, money or whatever, but to be able to, it sounds like more than replace your pharmaceutical sales income, you had to have some sort of secret. What do you think your secret is for being so, so successful? Yeah. So I really feel like the secret was that, you know, not giving up and treating it like a business. I I didn't treat it like a hobby. I went in, I used my my skills that I applied in any other job that I I did and I found really the people that I love to show up and I love to serve. And I think that's the biggest difference is that I didn't have an option. I had left my job. It had to work. And so going in and not quitting and then truly applying the skills and treating it like a business, not like a hobby. I think that was the biggest difference. I love that. And I think it's so incredible that you can have the income in something like this that you had having your MBA in a traditional corporate job. Like that's just a really cool thing because a lot of people, you know, we don't go to college or we don't leave high school with the vision that we could do something like this. And so that's really cool that that happened and that you're a model for that, for other women. I love that. Okay. So you mentioned to me that you have a motto about improving every day. What is that? Yeah. So my motto is to be 0.01% better 
than you were yesterday. And that really came to when I was, you know, in that transition and learning so many new things. I mean, when you switch your careers, I mean, Bree, you know this, you switch your careers in the middle of raising kids and your midlife it, and you're learning a whole new skill set. I just wanted to be a little better than I was yesterday. And one of the very first books I read was The Compound Effect. And that book, it really, it really drove me to that. And it's not everything. I don't focus on everything all the time, but imagine if you take one thing that you want to improve on and you are a little bit better. You're a little improved than you were yesterday. And you live your life like that every single day. At the end of a month, at the end of a quarter, at the end of the year, The growth that has taken place is monumental. And if you continue to apply that and, you know, apply that to your, to multiple things, once you really start that mindset and you apply it to multiple things in life, it is crazy the growth that can happen in a short period of time. Oh my gosh. I love that. And I I think I need to adopt that. (laughs) I think some days I go backwards. I'm like, oh my gosh, how much time did I waste like watching Netflix? I'm taking that. I'm doing that today. (laughs) I like that. Okay. Okay, good. Well, one of the things I've noticed in watching you is that you're always reading like self-development books. Like you're, I see you doing this practice, like you're putting into practice. So when you think about, I know you just mentioned a book that you really love, but are there any other books or practices that you put in place that you feel like have really helped you with that personal development? Yeah. So the two books I think are the biggest influences in my life is Jack Canfield, Success Principles. Uh, They also have a version for children. And we read this. We spent this last school year reading it before my kids went to school in the morning. But Success Principles by Jack Canfield, it is a book that you can just take and read just a chapter. I keep it on my desk. It's one that I read all the time and reflect back on. Another book is Today Matters by John Maxwell. If you are really looking to impact your life, like impact your life in the next 24 hours, that is a book that I have read recently this year in 2022 that has changed so much for me, focusing on the next 24 hours of my life. And that is what matters. Not the last, not, you know, next Tuesday, but the next 24 hours. And what am I going to do in the next 24 hours of my life to impact my future? And that came from Today Matters with John Maxwell. And if I could just say, having a morning routine and having books and the discipline of self-development, I didn't just all of a sudden wake up and do it. This is, I've been practicing and it started off with like five minutes a day. And that five minutes a day was like, oh, I'd probably do it three days a week. You know, and then I was like, oh, okay, well, next week let's go for four and then go to five. And then five minutes turned into seven and seven minutes turned into 10. And, you know, it turns into a lot of different things. And so here I am a few years later with a very distinct practice that, uh, you know, I really start. So that would be a few of my my tips for, for starting personal development. Well, and I think you hear like all the great thought leaders talk about morning routine and I suck at it. So... <laughs> I am going to, there are so many things I'm taking away from this call that I'm like, I'm going to be 0.01% better tomorrow. I promise. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're so cute. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I think something that I've realized not only in talking to you, but in talking to other women who've had something kind of earth shattering happen that 
it's these moments, these catastrophic moments, these things that happen that make you go, aha, like I have to change my life. But why do you think it takes something like that? Why do you think it takes a diagnosis or something hard for women to really wake up and and change their lives? Oh man, I wish I had like the golden key to like do this and it will change your life. But I don't. But I will say if you are someone and you are listening, don't wait for it. Giving you the encouragement. The way that I look at life now, Brie, is that we all have storms. Okay. We are either in a storm, we are coming out of a storm, or it's ahead of us. And I remember really thinking about my brain tumor. I remember sitting in church and actually having this sort of thought from a sermon. And I will just say that like you have a storm, every single person listening, you have a storm ahead of you. I don't know how big it's going to be. I don't know how small it's going to be. I don't know how much it's going to impact, but you have a storm. In fact, you have multiple. So change now. Prepare yourself now to do what is truly important and don't wait. You hear this over and over and I heard it over and over like this happened and then you change. And I am no different. It's exactly what happened to me. But if you haven't had something like that monumental in your life, don't wait for it to happen. Like make those changes now before that happens. Slow down enough that you can be still and think about what your everyday life is and what where you want to be in six months and a year and five years. So I wish that I had like a great answer, but I really do think that it is just being still and realizing that you do not have to have a storm. You don't have to have a catastrophic event to happen to make changes. I think that's so important. And I think, you know, I have heard from women multiple times that they feel like they're kind of living Groundhog's Day, you know, that every day kind of feels the same. And I think, you know, just like you said, being mindful of going, I'm not going to wait for something to shake things up. I'm going to start living the life or taking the 0.01% step towards living the life that I really dream of and giving your space in your in your life to even have a dream because I think that's the other problem is that we're so busy and bogged down by our responsibilities we don't even leave room for dreaming. So okay, when you think about this next chapter, when you think about midlife, how are you feeling? So I am feeling um, very prepared. I'm feeling very prepared and ready to you know, parent. I think these next four to eight years, maybe even 10 years of my life, my parenting and my presence with my children and my husband are the priority for me. And I feel prepared and where I'm going. I'm anxious. If I, if I didn't say that I wasn't anxious, I would be telling a lie because <laughs> I, I am anxious. I am a natural, um, person who wants everyone to be happy. I am a natural parenter who would be defined probably as like a helicopter mom. Like I, (laughs) and I am very self-aware of it. And so I am reading books and getting educated on how to not be that and how to let my children have failures within my home versus when they get out on their own. And, um, so I, I feel very prepared and in going into the next chapter, but also very anxious in, you know, the things that potentially could happen that I'm, you know, maybe ready or not ready for. Uh, But I, I feel prepared in my mindset. I feel prepared with who I am 
as a woman, my role in my my life, where what I want, I, I know exactly what I want. And I think that gives me confidence in in preparation. Well, I think that a lot of women listening can relate to the anxiety that this next chapter causes, you know, whether you're a mom or not, because it's kind of the like it's it's a big it's a big turning point, you know, whether you're going to be an empty nester in, you know, the future or whether you're just trying to figure out what your legacy is. Like there's so many of those big things that I think kind of happen in this next chapter. But I love what you said about you're feeling ready because you've really set the foundation for knowing your head is in the right place. Your life is set up to tackle whatever comes your way. And I think that's awesome. So I'm so glad you're here today, Kelly. Your story is remarkable. And I love your energy and your bright light. You can just even feel it through your social media. But tell everyone where they can find you. Yes. Thank you so much. This has been an amazing conversation. So you can find me. I hang out a lot on Facebook. And you can find me at, um, if you just go to the top and search Empower Kelly with an IE, you can find me there. I'm also on Instagram. I have recently gotten on TikTok. So if you need some teenage humor um, or funny, I'm there. I, I am there. It's interesting space on TikTok. Um, but you also can uh, find me on uh, Instagram at Kelly Johns Hoover. Awesome. And I'll put that in the show notes too. So thanks again, Kelly. It was so fun. This was so fun to have you. (laughs) Thank you, Brie. Loved being here. Uh, And thank you so much to all of you for listening. It is always a joy and so humbling that you tune in. If you can so kindly subscribe to the podcast, give it a rating or better yet, a review, I would appreciate it. This will help lead more women to this conversation. And the more women that join in on this conversation, the fuller it will be. Have a great day, friends, and I hope that tomorrow you are 0.01% better than you are today.